This is Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. Aviation Careers Podcast will help you navigate towards your aviation career goal. Here's your host, Carl Valeri. Welcome to Episode 10. Ever want to know what it takes to upgrade to captain in an airline? Upgrading to captain is one of the more challenging events in a pilot's flying career. The transition to flying as first officer to pilot in command is more than a simple check ride. The process of becoming a captain takes weeks of hard work and study. If you're curious about what it takes to upgrade a captain, we'll describe the process and give you advice on how to prepare for the upgrade training, but not only that, how to pass your check ride. And to help me with this, I'm with Len Costa today. Len Costa is a newly minted airline captain. Captain Costa is a publisher also of thepilotreport.com and host of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Hi, Len. How are you doing today? I'm great, Carl. Glad to be here today. Yeah, well, first, congratulations on your recent upgrade. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm sure that it was a, it was a bit of a journey. And uh, how many weeks did it take you to get to that point? Uh, roughly, uh, took us roughly six weeks. Of course, we had a, a couple of minor delays uh, in in some scheduling issues, uh, getting some of the events done, like the oral, and then a couple of a uh, couple of maintenance issues with one of the flight simulators. It put us back a few more days, but uh, it's it's roughly a five to six week process. Well, before we start talking about the process of actually upgrading the the captain and the tough parts, let's talk something a little bit more fun. Let's talk about the airplane you fly and. Actually, it's the same plane that I get to fly every day also. It's called the Embraer 145. It's a 50-seat jet, and it's used primarily for some of the low-cost carriers and low-cost regional carriers and the regional carriers here in the United States. And, Len, tell, tell us a little bit about, first of all, flying the Embraer and, and maybe some of the things that you think are pretty cool about it. Well, first and foremost, I'm glad you didn't call it a regional jet because there's nothing regional about where you and I actually fly this airplane. <laughs> Not the truth. <laughs> yeah, you know, domestically all over the United States, all over Canada, southern Mexico, or um, all over uh, Mexico and southern Canada. You know, some of the, it, the, the Embraer 145 is the very first turbine, uh, turbo jet that I ever flew. I had an opportunity when I was flight instructing to do a very, very minor amount of time in a TBM 700. And I've only got about 10 hours. That was my first turbine aircraft, but the first jet I ever flew was the Embraer 145. So I kind of have a, you know, a special place in my heart for the airplane. And some of the things uh, that I learned obviously were high altitude flying, how to manage speed, which is a whole new, you know, you think you're fast, maybe in a Cirrus or something, but there's a whole new realm of speed once you once you're able to go above 250 knots above 10,000 feet uh the couple of the other things uh, you know to that were fun to learn in the beginning process was like descent planning and all that kind of stuff because you're no longer you know in, in general aviation aircraft i usually use my ground speed uh a combination of ground speed and distance to figure out how many feet per minute and how far out well it's complete it's almost complete reverse process in the jet because you're traveling at so much greater speed. So it's been, it's again, since it's the first jet I've ever flown, I really can't compare it to anything. But it is, uh, it's quite an interesting airplane. It's very agile. In fact, it kind of ties into one of my favorite parts about flying the airplane. And uh, that is that uh, because, because of its size and the drag devices that are actually on the aircraft, like the speed brakes and the way that uh, our landing gear works, that uh, we can put the landing gear down at 250 knots and we can put a lot of flaps in. 
when we're really fast. So what that means is I can dirty up the airplane and I can I can bring it out of the sky really quickly. Now I say quickly, but quickly doesn't mean out of control. Quickly is um, what's the what's the the term we use on it? Stabilized, a stabilized approach. Yes. So it is it is stabilized, but you can. This is a particular airplane where you can actually manipulate it very well, and it will do most of the things you want it to do. Get you to you know crossing restrictions and other things like that. In fact. We, one of my favorite parts of flying the airplane is what some of us dub at work as the space shuttle approach. And that's when, <laughs> that's when you know what I'm talking about, don't you, Carl? That's when they, you get vectored for the approach and all of a sudden you're on downwind at 7,000 feet. They clear you for the visual and you're like, uh, uh, oh, oh, yeah, okay, I got this, I got this. Uh, gear down, flaps nine, speed brakes out. You're coming down a couple thousand feet per minute. You're turning base. You've got it, you know all configured and stabilized and it's just it's coming down real nice and you can you can get this airplane to the runway from just about any altitude um in, in a short amount of time so that's that's one of my favorite parts about it that's pretty cool they you know it's funny because a lot of people don't realize when you talked about being downwind you're probably downwind at like 240 knots and now you actually have to land on that runway sure. so sure. now you have to slow down and go down and most planes don't slow down and go down very well but boy I tell you like you said put that gear out man you come down really quickly in that mm-hmm. aircraft mm-hmm. what's interesting too is that we talk about quickly you know give us an idea what what you mean by quick do you mean like a 1500 foot per minute descent uh, well, you know, below 10,000 feet, I try to keep it within reason, but you can, uh, I mean, above 10,000 feet, I've seen some descents in the aircraft in excess of 8,000 feet per minute when trying to make a crossing restriction or something else like that. Uh, below 10,000 feet, you can clearly, you can do that much, but I don't prefer to get above, you know, three or 4,000 feet a minute in the descent for obvious reasons with the ground approaching. Uh, but it's, it, you know, it will do just about as far as you can nose it over within the, the speed limits and the uh, the actual you know limitations of the aircraft operational limitations now you you said that the handling you like a lot and and that's one thing I do like about this you can just kind of use your fingertips and fly it but one of the things that people don't know about this airplane it's similar to the 190 the Embraer 190 we had someone on last episode talk mm-hmm. about that where it has those ram's horns and that takes a little bit of getting used to do, do you like using those ram horns I actually do, and and coming from general aviation aircraft, where you're you're used to the conventional yoke, you know, being looking like a W, if you will, something you see in a Cessna or you see in a Boeing seven thirty seven. The ram horn was well, it was visually strange to actually see at first. What I noticed immediately when I put my hands on that yoke and I started flying in the flight training device and the simulator was just how comfortable and almost almost ergonomic. I mean, it just, it feels right. It feels, it feels the way a yoke should feel almost. And that's kind of strange because up to that time I had about 1200 hours in a quote unquote conventional yoke, uh, you know, from a Cessna perspective and then going to the Ram horn, I was like, wow, I really like this. I mean, you can't even really talk about the side stick because that's just like a whole different animal. But from a yoke perspective, uh, I really do like the Ram, the Ram horn design. You know, one of my favorite things about the Ram's horn, especially when I'm on the ground, is when you're on a really long delay, my newspaper hangs perfectly over <laughs> top of it. I don't, Carl, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't read the newspaper in the, at work. Well, well, no, not while we're flying, of course. When we're parked sitting there waiting with the, right. the parking brake set, we'll sit gotcha. there for hours sometimes, just even waiting to board passengers. We, True, yes, but, I'm just teasing. <laughs> 
Well, and that, that's cool. Is there, is there anything else you like about the, the Embraer? I think uh, one thing people don't realize is how much automation is in the Embraer 145, even compared to, say, some of the Boeings. Sure. The automation is nice. The automation is, I mean, the automation won't differ in respect to the way you use it in a Cessna or a Cirrus or a Piper. If you're talking about general aviation aircraft, and what I mean by that is it will do what you tell it to do, right or wrong or indifferent. It just, it's, it's what I, you know, what do you call it? It's like a dumb waiter. It's just going to do what you tell it to do. Um, but it is very useful a lot of times when it's, you know, bad weather, uh, when there's, um, um, you know, it's been a long day or something like that. But the, this aircraft has, uh, the systems it has are you know, the autopilot. We have, um, um, actually, one of, you know what? You talked about the, the Embraer 190. One thing the Embraer 145 doesn't have in the way of automation is it does not have auto throttle. I actually prefer that. How do you feel about that? What do, you, do you wish we had auto throttle? Uh, in certain instances, yes. I mean, I mean the, real, the big one is when I really want to go fast and I don't have to constantly jockey the throttle when I'm right up on the barber sure. pole. Or at the con- That's the one time I want the auto throttle. Otherwise, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. Uh, if I feel lazy that day, maybe you know, I'd like the auto throttle. But other <laughs> than that, no, it's, it hasn't. It, it, but then again, we've been flying this so much, so it's almost automatic now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I remember flying the Embraer 120, where anytime I made an adjustment, I automatically adjusted my trim for my rudder. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I guess I, I'd have to experience the auto throttles. The only thing I've ever been able to fly with auto thrust, I guess it's called, is is the uh, Hawker jet. Um, but yeah, gosh, you know, it, it really doesn't seem to make that big of a difference because I see those guys they grab the thrust levers. You know, every time I'm sitting in the in the jump seat, even mm-hmm. though it has the auto throttles, and they're adjusting it anyway. Sure. Yeah, I think you're right. I yeah, right. I, I kind of like the fact that it doesn't. If, if it makes me, I think it gives me that last feeling of con- that last connection with the airplane of when I when I move this lever, it makes a change instead of a machine moving it and my hands not on there. I mean, you can see visually the change, not only in your engine instrumentation, but also in your airspeed. But for some reason, for me, being kind of like a physical learner, you know, I like that hands-on tactile feel. And I, I kind of like that. So that's one piece of automation we don't have, which I actually appreciate. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I like the fact that you can just fly this thing without the autopilot on, too. Sure. And, and actually do I even do it without the, the flight director. You know, doing an approach without a flight director, et cetera. It just really kind of keeps you engaged in the actual mm-hmm. flying the airplane. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And that's that's one thing that I I also try and do since you're sort of on the topic what we call we call that flying raw data, which is uh, with no flight director. One of the reasons is you know it's almost for personal proficiency. Now I'm not going to be flying an ILS or a Category Two ILS or something down to minimums with no not you know no autopilot or no flight director. I'm going to use those levels of automation in those instances. But like on a visual day, it's a good practice. I like to keep comfortable with the airplane, and I and that's one thing that I do personally to stay proficient flying the airplane is actually flying the airplane and not just pressing the automation buttons in the autopilot. So I fly at least from takeoff to 10,000, sometimes takeoff to, to, to uh, flight level 180. I'll hand fly. And then usually when we're starting to get vectored around for the approach, the, you know, the terminal, the terminal approach area, that's when I'll hand fly. I don't necessarily hand fly the descent because so many times we have multiple crossing restrictions and speed changes. It's just easier to actually manage the system then. But, uh, you know, so that's, that's how I kind of keep in tune with the aircraft, if you will. 
Well, that's cool. You know, one of the things that, uh, as far as automation is concerned, that we have on the, the Embraer, and I think most Embraers have, is, uh, and honestly, it's going to sound silly, I know, one of my favorite things is the the automatic ice detection system. Sure. But not only the fact that it detects the ice, it actually turns on the anti-ice system for Correct. me. Right. And it's one of those things where it's, ah, oh, yeah, the ice is on. Okay, good. It's coming on. The valves are open. Everything looks good, and I'm fine. I'm happy. Uh, I noticed on the Boeings, I just jump-seated on a Boeing a couple of days ago, and they're having to turn everything on manually. Right. Uh, so that, that, that's one thing I really like about the automation because sometimes you'll miss some of that icing, you know, that's that's somewhat light, and it automatically turns on there for you. So I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, and, the you know, the Canadair version of the regional jet, uh, the 100 and the 200 are also like that. I believe the new 700 and 900 model which have a, you know, if um, a FADEC, I believe that version does it automatically for them. But those earlier versions are similar as well. And it's, you know, icing is just one more thing to have to remember. And if the system does it for you, it's, a, it's just another level of safety. It's a good safety net. Oh, sure, sure. As a matter of fact, when I transitioned from the CRJ200 to the Embraer 145, one of the things that I, uh, I kept coming up with the wrong answer during the oral prep was what happens when the uh, anti-ice system automatically comes on and I said oh there's a master caution and they're like no it just turns on and <laughs> that's the difference the 200 actually gives you a caution says that you have icing sure and then you actually have to physically turn it on whereas the Embraer will turn it on for you you know getting back to what you said about the flying without the autopilot on I think that's a good transition to what we're talking about here today one of the things to really prepare yourself for flying during a check ride or just flying an airplane in general without all the automation is flying at what you just called raw data and uh, do you think that may have helped you I know uh, during this upgrade process the fact that you actually flew the airplane uh, I know for a fact that it did because it's more it makes like I said it gives me that it's not like a physical connection you might have with a human being, but it is a sort of connection on that level where I just I'm just more in tune with the aircraft. I've been for I mean I've been flying this airplane for six years and seven months, eight months or so, and I've always done a significant amount of hand flying instead of just there. I mean, there's people who after takeoff at five hundred or thousand feet autopilot on and it's on until two hundred feet above the uh, above the ground for landing and. For me, you know, you kind of, you lose a little bit of airmanship or comfort with that aircraft because you're a little bit over-dependent on the system. So uh, definitely hand-flying the airplane made it easier for me, more comfortable for me in instances like doing go-rounds and missed approaches, doing stalls and steep turns, which, yes, we actually do stalls and steep turns in transport category jets in the training environment. So if you think you're going to get away from those after primary flight training, no, no, no. Those are always going to be a part of your daily, your daily proficiency in training. So those kinds of things, you know, that hand-flying experience definitely translated for me. And it always makes me more comfortable as, as a, just an aviator in general, but it definitely played a big part in the upgrade process. Well, that's great information. As a matter of fact, that plays into what we're going to talk about now as far as the upgrade process. One of the things that our audience is curious about is what's it like to upgrade uh, at an airline? And and for those people that are actually preparing to upgrade, we're going to talk a little bit about how to get ready for that upgrade training. But at your airline, Lynn, could you just explain a little bit about that whole process? Just Go through what happened from from day one and just give us a quick overview as to, you know, from day one, what you did to the time when you were actually called a captain. 
Well, it's basically like getting dragged through a barbed wire fence naked. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Not, no, not nobody's going to want to do that. <laughs> no, no, it's not quite that bad. Um, it's, it's, don't get me wrong, it's very intense. Uh, it's a very intense process because what it is, is, is essentially when you go through upgrade training, you're expected to have a certain level of knowledge on the aircraft. And by all means, why would they not? I've been flying it for, you know, over six years. I should know X, Y, and Z with a certain level of comfort. So when you first start at the airline, it takes them eight weeks, a full two months to train you on this aircraft. And half of that is aircraft systems. Okay. So you're talking about almost a month of aircraft systems. In Captain Upgrade, it was uh, four days. Wow. That's a big difference. So you went from four weeks to four days, and it was like putting your mouth around a fire hydrant and just trying to take a drink, okay? So, again, it's not that you don't know this stuff, but it is a level of trying to refresh yourself and remember it and be able to articulate it enough for an oral examination. And so when you're blowing through that stuff so fast, that's why I'm like, it's like getting dragged through a barbed wire fence naked because it's just, it, it's so abrupt and it's so different than the first your first experience. But kind of take you from the basics and obviously the, the the first and foremost in order to go from a first officer position to a captain position with any um any 121 air carrier in the united states is you have to have an air transport pilot atp certificate if you don't have that you have to have done at least the atp written exam so that was something that i had done a few years ago but i still had a i only had a commercial pilot certificate so i had the atp written already done that was one step before I even got there. For us, it was uh, was a combination of two days of basic indoctrination, which is essentially a complete review of all the company policies in our flight operations manual. That stuff as far as how to handle emergencies with regarding to you know medical emergencies, diversions, different things, operational specs like where you can land, where you can't land, type of weather that you can land in. Uh, for instance, when you're when you're you, when you're using RVR runway visual range, you know how low can I go? We can actually land this airplane in 500 feet RVR, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but that's barely one stripe on the center line of a runway. You know, all that stuff's in that book. There's an exam at the end of that. Okay, so I've already talked about the ATP written exam or the ATP certificate as the first part. You go through this basic indoctrination class with the company policies and procedures, and there was an there was a uh, written exam. Then we went through, you know, the four days of aircraft systems, another written exam. And then we had um, one day of crew resource management and what they refer to as um, uh, HCAT, mountainous terrain, which is human-centered uh, automation training and uh, mountainous terrain flying. So the HCAT human-centered automation training is basically teaching you how to interact with that autopilot, interact with that automation, but also knowing that if, you know, like I said earlier, it's just as stupid as you tell it to do something. If you tell it 2,000 feet per minute in the descent and you never put it alt- anything in the altitude pre-select, it'll fly right into the ground. There's nothing wrong with it. So that's kind of the stuff that that focuses on. So we're up to three exams now, counting the ATP. Um, after that, there is an oral examination, just like there is in any uh, any pilot practical, you know, certification process. That oral exam for us was uh, two hours, and on ours for our class, our our selection of um, 
of applicants, we actually had an FAA observer sitting in. So I'm getting an or doing an oral exam on a, you know, a jet turbine aircraft for the purpose of a type rating with an FAA member of the FAA sitting and observing. So that's, uh, Lucky that's, the, yeah, tell me about it. So that's the fourth exam. If, for those of you keeping count out there, after that, we go into what's called, um, lessons in the FTD, the flight training device, which is essentially like our full motion simulator, except without the motion. So it is a complete cockpit mock-up. There are no visuals. So what it's there and what it's designed for is basically what they call systems integration. And it gives you time to sit in the left seat, push the buttons, move the switches, do a couple of takeoffs. Now, like I said, there's no visuals. So, I mean, you can take off and you can fly around and do approaches and stuff. You just, you know, you essentially can't land because there's no visual screen out front. There's nothing for you to really know where you're going. But it can get you through about 90% of what you would do in the full, the, the full flight simulator. So there was three lessons there. The third, of, the third lesson was a training gate, which is it's, it's not quite a check ride per se. But a training gate is, hey, how's the process of this student? Are they, have they pro- progressing? along the tasks well enough to continue them onto the flight, the, the full flight simulator. So now, essentially, that's your fifth checking event. Then you go into the full flight simulator, and in there we had six lessons. Uh, six, five, correction, five flight lessons. And that takes it a step beyond. Now you're actually in there doing stalls, steep turns, V1 cuts, which for the non-airline folks out there, a V1 cut is a failure an engine failure at rotation speed, at liftoff speed. So um, we do, you know, we do engine failures. We do aborted takeoffs. We do in-flight fires, fires on the ground, emergency descent, emergency evacuation. Uh, we also did a rapid depressurization for the cabin. So what they do is, you know, you just go through essentially all the worst case scenarios, and that's what you practice in the full flight simulator, as well as getting a fir- your first opportunity to physically taxi the airplane. Now, again, for the non the non airline folks or non aviators out there listening to their show, most in most aircraft you actually steer the airplane on the ground with the rudder pedals, and and those pedals have two purposes: they they move the nose wheel left and right, which actually drives you around on the ground, and they have brakes. So if you press down on the toe portion of those pedals, there's brakes. In the Embraer 145, that's also correct. With one exception, the rudder only controls you five degrees left and right uh, for for steering with the nose wheel. So we have an extra device called the tiller, which is basically a miniature steering wheel that allows us to steer that nose wheel up to an extra 71 degrees left and right. So that's really how we drive the airplane on the ground. So that takes practice. And that's one of the things that you actually get to do for the first time in the full flight simulator. So after the uh, after the Four, there's four lessons. The fifth one is essentially a mock check ride. The sixth one is your type rating. And that's when you go in there and you perform these maneuvers with an examiner to ATP standards, and that's your check ride. Now, again, our class was fortunate or unfortunate enough, however you wish to look at it, to have FAA observers uh, during this process as well. Um, by the time I made it to my jet type rating with some of the delays for the maintenance issues in the simulator, I didn't have an FAA observer, so um, they weren't in my type rating. But so that's now the, I think that brings us to our sixth checking event. 
After that, we went into uh, one final simulator flight, which is called a loft, and that stands for line-oriented flight training. That right there is basically the first time you sit down in the airplane in the left seat as a, as a uh, you know just passing your type rating. You're acting as pilot in command. You're captain, and you'll do a flight from point A to point B in real time, walking into the airplane just as if it was parked at the gate at such and such airport. Introduce yourself to the flight attendant. They'll load the fake passengers, the fake bags. You'll give your briefings. You'll push back. You'll taxi out. You'll take off. You'll go to your destination. It's all in real time. Of course, there's a few things they're going to throw at you during that process. Um, We had a a TCAS alert, so we had a traffic avoidance maneuver. We had to navigate around weather. We had an engine failure on takeoff. Um, I think that was pretty much the extent of that during the loft. So after, after all that is said and done, you move on to the final, essentially the final phase, which is called OE, operational experience. And that's where you operate an actual revenue flight with paying customers in the left seat. However, you're still not technically captain. You're still not technically PIC. What they've done is they've paired you up for 15 hours with a Czech airman. And that Czech airman is certified by the company to essentially fly the airplane single pilot, if you will. And that's kind of, they have to be to a certain level of proficiency to be able to teach and instruct and fly and and do essentially everything in the event that their training applicant sort of freezes or gets flustered. So you fly 15 hours with them. And uh, that, for me, was over the course of four days. Uh, Four days and 16 flights, actually. It was a nice round number, 16 flights. At the end of that, if you haven't lost track, we're up to six checking events. At the end of that, there is another check, another sign-off by the check airman uh, to say, yes, this person is, to this point, progressing still forward at a reasonable rate. And after that, so that's seven now, seven che- seven checking events, you have an observation by a representative of the FAA uh, to, again, say that the FAA also agrees with the company that you're at a level of proficiency to operate that aircraft as pilot in command. So over six weeks and all over the last 15 minutes of talking, we've gone through everything that it takes from, uh, you know, from written exams to oral exams to practical exams to flying in the aircraft and all these different observations, eight different checking events, eight different checking. Oh, so when, gosh, I so when I <laughs> tell me, so, so do you understand what I meant now when I said it's like getting dragged through barbed wire naked? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which would be better. Boy, it, it, it sounds like that was a real difficult process. Gosh, you know, honestly, while you were talking, I was getting nervous. And uh, Were just, you reliving your own experience? I, I really was, actually. I was like, oh, my God, I just remember all, all these flashbacks here. Uh, but it's still, I mean, that's, that was tough. I mean, there's all this to do. So really, w- we can say that you, you aren't trained to just be somebody who jumps in the cockpit and pushes buttons. That's correct. <laughs> so that's good to hear. So many other levels, yeah, yeah. <laughs> good to hear. I'm glad. I'm glad that the people that are flying me around aren't just trained to push some buttons. So, and there's a lot, a huge process involved there, and I think that puts people at ease too to know that. But that, Len, you described this whole process of going through training, et cetera. You know, I'm sure people are thinking right now. How do you, I don't know if I could do that. I mean, I don't know if I could make it through that. For you, Len, how did, how did you actually get ready for this whole process, and how did you prepare for this upgrade training? Sure. Uh, you know, 
we have all of the training material in the books. They're all provided by the company. Some folks, this is one thing that I don't like to necessarily admit openly, but the reality of the fact is I didn't necessarily with my work schedule and other things going on in my personal life have time to sit down and prepare. Um, you know, I didn't like sit down and prepare weeks and weeks in advance for this. Uh, what I had done was there's a lot of resources actually floating around internally for study guides and stuff like that uh, for uh, for us to use. And I had those and I started kind of browsing through those, but essentially didn't really start ingesting material. And this is, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm proud of it, but this is just the way it turned out for me in this instance, you know, until I actually got down to training on, uh, you know, the day before training started. So I started going through the the very first item is uh, memory items and limitations. Those are those are a no brainer. Those are something you're always expected to know on your aircraft because they are memory items and they are limitations. And, and what's you, the difference between those two again? Well, you know, memory items are certain things like for emergency procedures, and limitations would be certain things like uh, weight restrictions in the aircraft, or putting the landing gear down no faster than 250 knots, or a speed restriction on a flap setting. Uh, different, you know, different things like that. However, we have what did I? What is it like? 120 or 140 memory items and limitations combined. It's quite. It's quite a lengthy bit. I stopped counting. <laughs> I, I know. I don't know how I remember all of them. So it, what I did was that's obviously stuff that I was reviewing every couple of days. But what the biggest thing was sitting down with essentially one or two other people in class. I, I knew I couldn't do this big group thing. When people sit down and there's five or six of you and you're all sitting around the table, you end up starting BSing and you're talking about stories about when this happened in the airplane. And, and mind you, they're effective learning moments. Uh, it's not an effective learning environment for the purpose of getting through your check ride. Like, I, I just don't need to be spending time here talking about that one time you had a medical emergency. I mean, I, I can relate to it, but it wasn't helpful. So there was uh, myself and two other gentlemen actually sat down on pretty much a daily basis, reviewed our notes from each day, and we would go through the study guides. And the study guides had their own question banks. And so we would just ask each other, we'd sit in our, the, the three of us sit in a round table, and we would just roll through those questions time and time again and ask each other. And we had, we had I don't know, we had so many questions. It was, it was, uh, it was ridiculous, but it was helpful because what we actually saw was a full breadth of you know, things that we could be asked. And it's funny because some of those things that were in the study guides weren't necessarily things that I would have known to essentially browse over. And I won't say that I would have failed my oral exam for not knowing them because let's be honest, an oral exam isn't an event where you go in and you're going to pass with 100%. You never. I don't think I've ever known a person to know. They want to see that you basically have a comfort, a comfort level with the operational knowledge for the aircraft. You're going to have a couple of wrong answers. You're going to not know a couple of things. And they also want to be able to teach you a couple of small things. So um, that's what we did, man. I mean, we just sat down and we helped each other out in a small group. That was my biggest asset was, was the two other guys that, uh, that I studied with. So those study groups can be really good, and and I have to agree with you. They're they're good to a certain uh, aspect, but then they they fall off. In other words, say there you're there for an hour, you learn a lot, but then you start talking war stories. It's time to get out of there, and you have to know the information yourself. And I think that's kind of what right. you're saying too. You have right. to really understand that. You know, it it is good, but you you have to use it with 
you know, some judgment there. And, and I think that's important in any study group. Nobody's going to carry you. You have to do studying yourself, and it is good to get with these groups. But what I used to do, I do an hour with a study group, and then I go back. And that was my limit. I try to get as much as I can. Now, moving back to what you said about those 100 uh, memory items and limitations, those are just things you had to memorize. But there's, in addition to that, and this is something that I, I find has been very important in my flying career, especially as a captain, is there's many things beyond that. For instance, there's certain things about the systems that during your oral exam you'll be asked certain limit not not limitations, but like when does this warning system come on at, at what setting? And those are things that are even in addition to that hundred. So those you you know that's something I, I'm not sure you you impressed upon there, but but you you know you need to know when does the anti system come on when right. when are you going to get a warning about a battery over temp you know when does uh, this this pump come on when does it and those are the little things that that become captain's knowledge as opposed to knowledge when you first get onto the aircraft and they're usable when you actually get out there on the line. Yeah, and, and if I didn't necessarily impress upon that, what I was. Uh, when I mentioned the word operational knowledge, that's kind of where some of what you just mentioned plays in. You know, six and a half years on the airplane, you have seen uh, so many things, and that builds to that operational experience. And for me, my learning process isn't just auditory, it isn't just visual. It's kind of a combination of seeing, hearing, and then doing. So when I read something, great, that means nothing to me. When I see something, okay, sure. When I experience something, aha, I've made the connection. And that's that kind of that's what ties into that operational experience essentially when you just mentioned, you know, when would that uh, icing system come on? Well, I've seen that time and time again. How many how many winter flights have I done? So if I just sit for a moment and I think of, uh, you know, the 700 winter flights I did, et cetera, whatnot, when did it come on and what did it do? You know, you know these things, you've experienced them. That's when the real learning happens for me. Sure. And you know what's interesting is at one point, uh, I know with the airline I work for and also uh, other airlines, people were upgrading and had never been on the aircraft. They have that additional challenge. They don't have that experience. So now they've really got to study. They have to really memorize everything because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they haven't seen it yet. In preparing for your upgrade training, you were saying that you hadn't come – you felt that you didn't come with with much knowledge or much uh, – excuse me, not knowledge, but much uh, studying. But since you did have all the experience in all those years in the airplane, sounds like you really knew a lot already about the airplane. Well, you, you know some things uh, with a certain t- – with a, a a greater a great enough level of certainty, but to know systems intimately, I you know that I didn't go there having that intimate knowledge ahead of time. Now it's kind of funny, and I'm I'm not going to bring up any names, but there's a certain person in our class that I interacted with who did quite a bit of studying ahead of time, and it was interesting. And I'm not saying there's any correlation between this. So they studied ahead of time, I didn't, and it's interesting to see the way that they progressed through training and the way I progressed through training. And for some reason, they had a lot more stumbling blocks. And I can't say that it necessarily had to do with the preparation prior to coming to training as much as I, in the long run, I think it turned out they flew differently. Maybe they weren't, maybe they didn't use the autopilot. Or maybe they were one of the folks that used the autopilot more than I did. Maybe they were the one of folks that didn't keep 
as active into the flight and the, the, the process and the flight planning and the weather. And so while I didn't study my butt off for a month before I came down there, I think I had a little bit more depth of operational experience than that other person did. So it worked out for me, but I'm not, you know, I'm not advocating don't prepare ahead of time. It's just, like I said, that's just the way it turned out uh, scheduling wise for me. But it was still yet interesting to see that even somebody who's prepared their butt off to still see them struggle because conceptually you would think, well, if they've been studying for a month, they should be, you know, a month ahead of me. Well, I found out in you know in this social environment, this testing environment, that that wasn't necessarily the case. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because when I went through training, I noticed that there was. It seemed like we were all studying, um, but it, it really was how people approached this studying and how they approached their flying that made a difference in their actual successor, sure, or in their training, their upgrade training. And I, in my class, when I went through, and I'd like to hear what, what your experience was. During our oral exam, I think it was about 25% did not pass. And during our flight tests in my class, 50% failed the flight test the first try. Let's talk a little bit about some causes as far as the upgrade training failure. But what was your experience with that before we talk about that in your class? Nearly identical. Oh, really? Nearly identical, yeah. In fact, it's, it's, it's yeah, I can think of 25% that didn't make it through the oral the first time and fifth, a little over 50% that didn't make it through the check ride the first time. This is, uh, you know, one of those interesting aspects because I did mention at the beginning of the show when talking about how our specific applicants, class of captain applicants, were being observed by the FAA. And some of the things that this is, this is I'm not passing judgment on the FAA or passing judgment on our examiners, but I could get I get the feeling that the student was nervous, the examiner was nervous, and the FAA was nervous. And so you get a bunch you get three people in a room who are you know trying to make ends meet, cross the T's, dot the I's, and I, I get a feeling that some of these failures may have been you know nerve related. So. That actually sort of ties into what you were just asking me, causes for upgrade training failure. I think primarily, my own personal opinion, one of the biggest things that causes people to fail, this check ride and or any other, is nerves. Nerves, nerves, nerves. I get it. I understand it's a completely nerve-wracking experience. I understand how much time and effort has gone into studying, and I understand what it's like. I've been through enough check rides through, you know, through the year, 15 years to get this far. But what I have noticed is the ability to remain calm and confident, answer the questions you know, absolutely say to the examiner, I'm sorry, but I don't know the answer to that question, or... Um, I'm not quite sure. And I am happy, fully happy to admit that to an examiner when I don't know something. Now, granted, you can't say that for 50% of the stuff, but you get a certain level of saying, you know, I'm just not sure about that. Sometimes the examiner will uh, rephrase the question in a way that's more under, you know, um, it's better understood by by you. And um, But the nerves is the biggest thing, because I want to talk about nerves for just another minute, Carl. But when I was actually in the jet the practical exam in the simulator for the type rating during one of my maneuvers there was uh, how do i say this something happened during one of my maneuvers which i perceived to have been a failure point and i only perceived that because i heard other people talking about it beforehand oh my gosh don't do this or you're going to fail 
interesting thing, I tell you. And the reason I say it's interesting is as soon as that happened, my heart nearly jumped out of my chest. It was racing and racing and racing. And I'm thinking to myself, darn it, Len, calm down, take a deep breath. If you, are, if you don't let this go and move forward and finish this, you're going to get distracted. And it took me about two minutes of just convincing myself, keep going, keep going, push through this, deep breath, deep breath, and just forgetting what just happened. Because I wasn't even sure that it was something wrong in the first place. I just thought so because somebody else told me it was. And so I took a moment, took a deep breath, I moved forward. I got through the event and at the end, we talked about it and the guy was like, oh, that wasn't anything at all. And I'm like, see, if I had focused on that one thing that I thought was something, my nerves would have killed me. I would have screwed something else up. So, you know, I talk about nerves, but it is a huge thing. Just be confident. You've, if you're not confident and you're not ready for the check ride, don't go. Reschedule it. Very, very good point. I think a lot of people do fail because they aren't uh, mentally ready and and you really should reschedule. But, you know, it's Len, I had a similar experience with one of my maneuvers. And, uh, you know, after I, I said to myself, hey, what's going to happen is going to happen. And, and don't, you know, take a deep breath, like you said, and keep moving forward. Then I asked him afterwards, same thing. He said the same thing. Oh, no, that wasn't a big deal. You know, maybe because we're so nervous, we're amplifying everything. <laughs> and it seems like they're worse sure. than it really is. Yeah. But that's a good point, though, Len. I think yeah, preparing for the check ride, you you really what you're doing, you you need to not just prepare yourself by studying mentally. You have to prepare for this check ride, and maybe by doing what some of the aerobatic pilots do in their during their shows is go through the whole thing in your mind and right. then, and watch yourself mess up in your mind and and figure out what you're going to do after that. Correct. And uh, I know one thing that helped me is that I. I just, it was almost like, I don't know if resignation, that's not the word. Like I said to myself, okay, I'm here. Here's the check ride. I'm going to do the best I can, no matter what. All I'm exactly. going to do is the best I can do. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to worry about passing. I'm going to worry about flying this plane as if there was passengers in the back. There you and go. And I'm just going to keep going forward. Uh, that that helped me a little bit. Sure. Uh, and, th- and like you said, there there is that confidence issue. Well, you're going to operate the aircraft safely like you would on the line, within standards, within limitations. You know, like you mentioned, rehearsing in the theater of your mind. I went over maneuver after maneuver after maneuver in my mind days ahead of time. Because um, after you've done it in the simulator, you know, you can walk away and you can visualize what you're doing. You can sit down and chair fly it. But, you know, I don't want to harp on nerves, but I would like to make one final point about nerves. If you're in the aircraft with the examiner and you're losing your cool, they have a hard time justifying giving you a rating or certificate because if what what are they they're thinking to themselves what is this applicant going to do in the aircraft when this actually happens right now we're in the safety of a simulator in an air conditioned building if this happened out in the aircraft what you know if this person's getting wrapped up or is nervous or it, you know is is getting in the crawling into the fetal position and just not reacting the app you know the examiner has a hard time justifying certifying an applicant under those circumstances so you got to look at this nerves from a big picture you got to go in there with that confidence and that professionalism operate that aircraft as, as safely as you would any other day of the week because they may not they may they, they might be like this this person's lost their cool in there they lost the edge and you know like Top Gun, he's lost the edge. But it's true. They're not going to make you pilot in command of an aircraft or give you a rating if you lose your cool. Because what will you do in the real world when the fecal matter hits the rotary blade? Great point, Len. 
Excellent. And I think everybody can take that home with them. And, I, and uh, I, I, I've learned something from that, too. You know, that, that's terrific to hear from somebody else about that. One thing I want to bring up, though, and this is kind of a, a, a sore point and, and something I want to actually expand upon. So people that are listening to this that aren't pilots, that are just interested in what it's like to upgrade, we talked about this high failure rate the first time. I hope people don't get too nervous listening to this, but, you know, there is, you know, you're going for a captain upgrade, or if you're going for your flight instructor certificate, there tends to be more failures because there is not much room for error during these check rides. And a good example is a CFI check rides between 70 to 80% of those people on the first try do not pass. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. And uh, and there's a reason for that. And what we're trying to do is talk to people and and try to get them beyond that check ride to the point where they're passing. And uh, I think nerves, yeah, that's a biggie. That's really it's a, yeah, a biggie. It's a big one. The other thing, too, and, and, I, uh, and this is a kind of a sore point amongst a lot of people, and I've seen this happen, is the lack of studying. I think the overconfidence... Uh, where it's it's there's confidence, and then there's overconfidence, and there's cockiness, sure. and I think there's yeah. a little bit of that there, and I've seen this happen where people have not made it through upgrade and have said, you know that you know if I would have known it was going to be this tough, I would have studied harder. And uh, <laughs> what are you if kidding? I would have known, no. uh, <laughs> for me, for me, it was not only a type rating in a jet, but it was an ATP check ride. So I mean, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how you could not think it would be, uh, you know, an in depth process. <laughs> right. Oh, you know, Len, that brings up a great point. You just said it's an ATP check ride, and before you said you took your, uh, you did not have your ATP, so you right. had to take this written exam. But you took that written exam a long time ago, right? I did. Uh, it was probably four-ish years ago now. Okay. Most uh, private pilot and instrument pilots listening to this today will say to you, well, you can't do that because it expires after two yeah. years. Sure. How were you able to take this check ride? The nice thing about an ATP applicant who is employed by an air carrier – I. It's at least 121. It may encompass 135. I'm just not as clear on that. But for sure, for for folks like ourselves in a 121 air carrier operation, as an ATP applicant and you take that written exam, as long as you are employed by an air carrier, a 121 operator, that exam does not expire in the same way your private or your instrument or your commercial would after a two-year period, 24 months. It's essentially good indefinitely. Now, had I quit the airlines and then wanted to go do an ATP at a flight school, now, that written exam was, it was toast. It, you know, it burned up. It was a pumpkin. Right. Good point. Great. Thanks for explaining that to people. The, uh, so when you get to an airline, it's best to get, your, get that out of the way. Just get your ATP written Yeah, done. sure. Yeah, there's, I mean... Don't wait for it last minute. That's you don't want to be you know cramming for that while you're also stressed out about you know the unknown of uh, of what's happening in upgrade. Kind of like I did. I mean, I, <laughs> I did that at the last minute. I did my written exam. I went to all yeah. ATPs and just 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 banged it out real quick. And that was way too stressful. I won't do that. Oh again. sure, yeah. But you know, be, before we move on to to our recommendations and just finishing up this whole topic of of upgrading, I think that anybody can do it. I think that if you You're put right. your mind to it, anybody can do it. It's it's more of a mental game than anything else because we Absolutely. know the tools we need. We have the tools. We have the studying. And, and I mean, what do you think, Len? No, you're correct because when I was referencing earlier about the study materials, it, it, 
it's not like I showed up on day one and they handed me a manual and said, memorize this. No, I have all the manuals. They're the manuals they gave me on day one of new hire first officer training school, volume one, volume two, the FOM, all the aircraft systems. All you got to do is pull those books out, pull out your old notes from initial training, pull out your memory items and limitations, study them, remember them, refresh them, memorize them. You know, lastly, on one of the other big things I talked about, the study group was really helpful, but part of that study group was the questions. For me, to sit down, read material, study it, and memorize it, it's junk, okay? Unless I can regurgitate it and articulate it through you sitting across from me and asking me a series of questions, then and only then do I really have a, 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 an intimate knowledge with that system. So the study environment was working together with each other to, to say, for instance, Carl, you know the pneumatics better than I do. Explain to me how you know it. Explain to me, dumb it down to me in a sixth grade level and, and, and teach it to me. Then I regurgitate it to you. Then you go around and you say, okay, what does XYZ do? How does this work? How does that work? And that series of questions is the, is the second half of the study group that made it, uh, that, that was beneficial to me. So, um, you know, just it was all-encompassing. But I had the material ahead of time. I've had this material in my bag for seven years. I'm not going to harp on folks who fail. There's reasons. There's, there's all kinds of circumstances. But the information is information that you I learned seven years ago, and I'm just relearning in a whole a whole different way, you know, a more intimate way. The best the best word to describe it is you're learning these things in a more intimate way. You know, all the resources are there; they've always been there. I've been carrying them around for seven years. Well said, Lynn, and I appreciate your helping with this, and also taking us on this journey that you just uh, took, going from being a first officer to. Uh, being a captain, and again, we congratulate you for Thank for you. actually finishing that up. And 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 let me ask you this: What's is it? Is it cool? Do you like it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes I say some strange things to get the point across, but it's probably the most fun I've had with my pants on in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. That's awesome. But Landon. no, it's it's it, the the perspective. I'll tell you quickly, Carl. For some. For some goofy reason, I f- my flying is smoother. My landings are better. Um, I don't know if it's because I fly better with my left hand than my right hand, but uh, you know, it's it's just different. It's been better. It's been more relaxed and more laid back. There certainly is a lot less to do, uh, meaning there's a lot less busy work. I don't. I sit there and I'm really managing everybody else taking care of their jobs when before I was just a cog in the system doing my job. So, uh, you know, you get to kind of sit back and separate yourself from the operation and just look at the whole big picture. So uh, that's what's really been the enjoyable part of these, you know, those first four days with the with the Czech airmen um, observing me is just kind of getting into that level. I sat down. After the, I think it was after the second day, he's like, so what do you think so far? And I was like, I always feel like I should be doing something. I feel like I'm just sitting here doing nothing. And he's, and, you know, he's like, well, you know, you're, it's, it's just different. The job is different. It's not about flying an airplane. It's about managing the system and managing the environment around you. So I've thoroughly enjoyed the whole 15 hours experience I have doing it so far. But I'm really looking forward to, uh, to my trip coming up here. And um, what's today? Actually, tomorrow. I'm going to work tomorrow. 
Oh, don't forget to wake up. But that's terrific. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool to hear about that, though, man. That, that's awesome. I'm, and I'm sure you'll have many more experiences to relate to us about oh, sure. actually flying as a captain. And uh, it really is a different perspective, not just because it's through a different window. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, Len, thanks again for, for doing all this and uh, and being with us. And if, if you don't mind, could you hang around while we uh, talk about some recommendations? Absolutely. And, My and pleasure. Some questions? Great, great. Uh, I know this show is going to go a little long on this one but uh, I really wanted to get some of this information out and uh, really want to hear what it's like to upgrade to captain because I know we're going to see a lot more of this coming on and, and we've given you a lot of information on how to prepare, most importantly, mentally prepare and study. But uh, our first recommendation actually is a recommendation uh, for our website. And this website has aviation product reviews, demos, and it has videos of people flying and enjoying the aviation lifestyle. That website, it's called thepilotreport.com. You know, and I, I think you're going to really enjoy the videos because the videos on this website are both entertaining and informative, and that is what this, web, this website's about. It's about video reviews. It's about the lifestyle, and it gives demos, but it gives it to you visually. And the person that actually owns that website, thepilotreport.com, is actually with us today, Len Costa. And, and Len... Talk a little bit about uh, this website and, and what it is. Did I describe it properly? Yeah, essentially you did. You know, the 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 brief, simple description is uh, when I first came up with the idea it, in the shower. I don't know. I come up with a lot of interesting ideas in the shower. I came up with the idea in the shower. I was thinking to myself, you know, we this is the age when the iPad had just come out. Okay, so this is about two, three years ago, and I'm thinking to myself, there's so much new technology emerging out there, and in the world of aviation, and it's not even necessarily just aviation, but in a, a lot of technical circles, there's product reviews, but a lot of product reviews are all written. Okay. I don't want to sit down and read somebody's words. I told you earlier during the show, I'm a visual learner. I want to see this thing in action. So the idea came to me, well, here you go, Len, sit down, review this software visually, sit down, take a customer, take a prospect through start to finish on using this software. Using, uh, you know, I have um, different equipment to share my computer screen with folks to take them through how to use this stuff. And that's really where the idea came from was, you know, and one of the other reasons, not just because there's not a lot of actual video reviews, but again, kind of going back to mobile devices, the iPad, the iPhone, the Android, even this this software that they sell, if you're looking at a piece of software, for example, like ForeFlight, I mean, you're, you're talking something that's over the $100 mark. You don't, you don't get to demo. Uh, well, this is kind of funny. You do get to demo it now, but some of these other products in the beginning and some products even now, you don't get to demo them. You just buy it unknowingly what you're getting yourself into. And so, you know, there's really no way to get a refund if you find something you don't enjoy. So, you know, I usually reach out to to a company and mention what I'm doing, and and um, sometimes they'll give me a trial or or access to something for a limited time, and that's how I came up with the idea. Was I wanted to to show people how to use these things visually so that they could make a buying decision uh, and, and see if it was something that they were interested in. Well, that sounds cool, and actually, I, I've I've experienced it. I've been on there and I've seen a, a few of your videos. I think they're awesome. I, as a matter of fact, they're. Some are really fun. I mean, like the one <laughs> flying in, uh, what was it, Alaska? You were up on a on yes. the hill there, or on the, what uh -huh. was that, the glacier landing? The glacier, yeah. Ruth Glacier up in uh, Denali National Park at the, at the base of Mount McKinley. 
Cool, cool. Well, so if anybody wants to find that website, they'd find it at uh, what's it, the website again? Uh, it is www.thepilotreport.com. And, you know, of course, if you have any questions about the pilot report, just uh, send them to, to Len, and he'll talk a little bit about that at the end of the podcast sure. here. But, yeah, thanks thanks for talking about that a little bit. And I really, like I said, I really like the pilot report. I appreciate actually, it. They do, uh, they do some other stuff. They produce, uh, or you produce, uh, another thing called the Stuck Mike Avcast, of course, and asked me to be a co-host on that show. And that's, sure. That's a really neat show. Mm-hmm. But let's move on to uh, some questions that we've had from some readers. And I know I've mentioned this before to some of our listeners. And, you know, Len, there, a lot of people have been writing in to me and asking me about spending time with them for some career counseling. And instead of doing that, I thought it'd be better to have myself talk about these questions, but also maybe bring in uh, our guest, which is you. And I'd like to get your opinion after I, I read some of their questions. It's really interesting how uh, a lot of folks are changing careers. And, and our first question actually is from Rob Sigliano. And Rob is from the Pilot Podlog. Excuse me, the new pilotpodlog.com is actually the one that he uh, he's actually running over there. Now, Rob, he writes into us, and I'll just read you uh, his actual email here. It says, uh, Carl, great podcast. I am really enjoying it. As an aviation enthusiast who is contemplating changing careers to the aviation industry, I find the podcast to be relevant and informative. I'm taking online classes at Embry-Riddle University for a master's in airport aviation management with the hopes of getting into the field when I'm ready to say goodbye to my current career. What advice would you give to someone who's not in the aviation industry but would like to change careers in their 40s? or 50s to join the aviation field. Keep up the great job. Well, thanks, Rob, and I really appreciate the question. As a matter of fact, when I looked at changing careers a little bit later in life, I was actually more in my mid-30s, mid to late 30s when I changed. There's a few things that you do have to look at, and there's some realities. If you're going to want to go and become an airline pilot, there is that age 65, the, the actual age 65 is where we do need to stop flying. So I would say, yeah, you need to you need to think about that. You need to think about if you're going to go to the airlines, that that's going to be the end of your career at 65. So you won't have as many years to actually fly. Now, what, why does that matter? Well, in the airlines, everything's about seniority. And if you're going to want to try to get up to captain, you might take you 10 to 15 years. But if you're already in your 60s, then you, eh, you're not going to have all those years to actually be a captain and make that money as a captain. So yeah, that's one thing to consider. But there's so many other jobs out there. There's many other jobs and you can fly and also be in the aviation career at the same time. So I'd suggest, yeah, I would I would suggest going into it but but with your eyes wide open. Anybody who's making that midlife career change uh, and don't be taken back by necessarily um, the age factor. I, uh, if you're, I would guess as an airline person in the hiring department, I'm probably not necessarily going to hire somebody if they're 55, 56, 57. They're starting to get, I don't want to say you're, you're useless, but from an airline perspective, if they're going to put that much money into you and only get a seven-year life, you know, shelf life on you, they may not choose to hire you. But I, I would say if you're in your late 40s up to maybe even your early 50s, we had a few folks in my initial training class that were in their early, early 50s who did uh, get hired on. So it's absolutely feasible. But at the same time, I just want to put that out there. Don't necessarily be upset if you're a little bit older and they say, sorry, you know, it's, it is also a financial decision for that company. Sure. And, uh, you know, in the U.S., you don't see that as much, but overseas, you definitely see more people turning down folks for being a certain age, especially over in the Asia 
uh, market. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk about that in the next episode, getting hired in China. But good point. Uh, but make sure it's something for you, and I would I would definitely go for it. And th- thanks for that advice, Lynn. Well, moving on to question number two. It's uh, from Sam. It says, Hi, Carl. I've always been interested in becoming an airline pilot and got as far as my private pilot's license before I said to myself, I would love to go further. However, it just does not make financial sense at this moment. In time, and risk is too big. I want to ask you about this apparent, quote-unquote, pilot shortage. Boeing's forecast for pilots sure looks like an impressive number. However, when you break it down to the number of pilots needed, it's not all that great, in my opinion. He said, uh, actually, it's Scott Spangler at, did an article on JetWine. The uh, title is Another Pilot Shortage, Really? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an interesting article. One of the things that's said in that article is, really, there isn't going to be much of a pilot shortage. But, but you know, I, I will say one thing. I just was at the Regional Airline Association meeting with all the human resources representatives, and one of the things that they were discussing is, you know, where are they going to find the recruits for the massive amount of hiring they're going to do. The thing to understand is that the hiring is going to be primarily, if you're starting out at the regionals, you will not be going right to a major. The majors could suck up every single person at the at the regionals and then move on from there. Uh, so just uh, I just want to make that point. And I, I don't totally agree with what uh, Scott says in his, his article. There are going to be some jobs. And you have to realize, boy, some years there's only a few hundred people that are hired. You know, for mm-hmm. years I was representing and still represent furloughed pilots. And, and some airlines don't hire for five to six years. But anyway, let, me, let me continue here with what he said. Uh, Sam writes, I've recently started a career, and my job role mainly involves computer programming. I work in the engine control and electrical power systems, and although this job is interesting, it's not really what my life ambition goal is, which is to become an airline pilot. However, being a pilot is all about making good decisions, and I think sticking with this job is a good decision instead of landing myself with an enormous loan for flight training with no guarantee of a job at the end, end of it all. So my question is this. I'm 25 years of age now, and by the time I save for my training, I will realistically be around 30 to 35 years old. Do you think this is too old of an age to start training as a pilot? Take care, Sam. I would say no, because that's about when I started. First of all, you're 25 years old, and you're talking about the, the financial part of it. There are a lot of grants and loans out there, and if you look at uh, some of the interviews I've done with other people on this podcast, the Girls with Wings, they actually have some of those loans and grants, and also the National Aviation Academy. There's some links there. So there is money out there for training, and it's you can borrow that money to go to school. Of course, it's going to take a long time to actually pay that off, that, that flight training loan. Uh, but if you're that age and you're thinking about it and you really, really want to do it, you have to ask yourself that, do I really want to do this? Then I'd say yes, then go for it. That's the that's the biggest thing is that you have to determine if this really is your true life's ambition because what's going to happen is you turn 30, 35, and you have all these things like cars and homes and kids, and then you decide, no, this isn't for me because I've grown into this lifestyle. Then it becomes 40, 45 until you start. And then we see a lot of those folks come to the airlines too. Uh, what do you think, Len? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's, again, going back to what we said about the uh, the last question from Rob pertaining to 40s and 50s, uh, it's, it's, heck, it's never too late to start anything. I don't care if it's aviation, whatever your heart 
desires. If you want to change careers, it's never too late. I've never changed a career. This is the first one I've ever have. I'm about to change one in the next couple of years because I'm not sure I'm going to stay in, uh, you know, in the airline business until for another 35 years. Um, but from that perspective, it's no, I don't see why it'd be too late. It's really going to come down to, I think, what um, what Sam's goal is, Carl. And that is, you know, is he are you going to be looking at financially what you may be losing out on by starting later in life? If that's not an issue to you, then, you know, you're just looking at those kinds of things to weighing in the factors of, like you said, what do I have now? What's going to be affected? What do I have to give up? What's going to change? Is it all worth it? It doesn't have to do with the airlines. You might be changing careers in something else. Maybe you got laid off and you have to take a job doing something that you're not trained in. Those kind of, those kind of questions, I think, always apply in a career change. So I say no. Just you got to look at what your desires are and you know, what the, the pros and cons are. And you're going to do that in any situation in life. Great. Even as a captain, right, Len? Even as a captain. (laughs) (laughs) Great, great input there, Len. Oh, and, and, you know, please follow up with us on on any more questions you have, Sam, if if that didn't answer your question, et cetera. But uh, one more question we have. I know we're going to go. We're right at the hour mark. We're a little bit running a little bit long, but I have one more question I want to get in. It's from Steve. And Steve writes in and says, hey, Carl, I'm a pilot slash blogger in Ohio and a regular podcast listener. I also know Victoria. Victoria is actually the co-host of the Stuck Mike Avcast, and uh, they finally met up at Oshkosh last summer. Recently, I was listening to your interview with Doug Stewart from Sebring and the discussion about the Certified Flight Instructor Sport Pilot Rating. I've recently been thinking about working towards that rating myself, and basically I'm trying to determine if it's a good idea or not. So hopefully you don't mind me asking a couple of questions about it. Uh, he has a career outside of aviation, and although I'd love to find a way to work in aviation long term, and at least right now, instructing is just something I'd like to like and I would enjoy. It would build my own skills, allow me to share my passion for flight with other people, and perhaps provide a little extra income on the side. I've been chatting with some other CFIs, and a couple interesting and good, in my opinion, suggestions have come up. One said I should go for my advanced ground instructor slash instrument ground instructor since it's relatively easy book learning slash studying test and certification, and affordable and would allow me to teach ground stuff on the side. Plus, it would get the fundamentals of instruction test out of the way because you'll need that for the CFI. I hadn't thought of this before, but it seems like a good suggestion. I really enjoy ground school when training for my private. Rob Machado is one who suggested I pursue my certified flight instructor sport pilot. I honestly had never looked into the requirements before, but it's a lot similar than it's a lot. Excuse me, simpler than fl- the full IFR commercial CFI route. Though I still think I would like to do that eventually. It seems like this might be a great way to bridge the money slash experience time gap. Also, the fact that my airport does a ton of LSA training in the Cub and Champ doesn't hurt. I know they're looking for CFIs. They've talked about to me about it, and every student starts in the LSA, so there's definitely some opportunity there. One major question I have, and I need to talk with them about this as well, is whether the current FAA limitation on dual hours received from a certified flight instructor, sport pilot, counting towards private training is a serious hindrance. I can certainly see how it would be. Why would they want one of their instructors to effectively be introducing a limitation on some of their students? On their hand, their hand, for students truly interested in getting the sport pilot certificate, it shouldn't matter. Any thoughts on this? Finally, any general comments, suggestions on the situation and plan in general? 
Thanks so much in advance. I really appreciate it. Well, Steve, here's, here's one thing I want to say about the sport pilot certificate. I think that the FAA is going to come out and say, listen, all those hours are going to eventually count towards the, the private pilot. For, for right now, just to back up, the sport pilot certificate instruction, or excuse me, the instruction you receive from a sport pilot flight instructor actually isn't going to count towards your hours for instructional purposes toward your regular private pilot certificate. And that's what I talked about with Doug Stewart and Sebring that time. One thing that I, I have to do some more research on, and I will get back to you on this, is whether that's, ha- that's going to happen. And what, but I, I personally think it's going to because it doesn't make any sense. You know, the instructions, instructional time. And I would say the one point, so let's, I would say, let me look into that. Let me get some, do some research on that first. But the one point you made about the AGI and the IGI, I would say go for it and get the fundamentals of instructors out of the way, the advanced ground instructor and the instrument ground instructor, because I know a few people that have done that and been able to jump right in and start making a few dollars there. If you can swing it, I would go for the full CFI, of course, right now until the FA figures out what they're doing with those sport pilot instructors and the hours toward your, your private pilot certificate. And uh, Len, do you have anything to add on that one? I agree. I think it's uh, if you can take the the you know the time to go through the full, if you want to call it the full, uh, that is just taking the you know the the CFI commercial CFI route now. Um, but if you had to go through the sport pilot route, never, I mean, never think that your experience as an instructor or your flight experience in a sport aircraft isn't going to translate to a 172 or something that you might be able to progress to later on. So you're going to get, you are going to accumulate, I'm talking from an instructor standpoint, I, I respect the fact that the training as a student, the student applicant can't transfer. But if you're the instructor, you're still flying that airplane. You're still giving instruction. You're still manipulating the flight cro- uh, flight controls and getting that experience, which will help you later on if you can't, you know, for financial reasons, if you don't take the full route, if you just do the, the CFI sport pilot. All that's going to translate. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make you a better pilot later on for when you do decide to take that next step if you think you need it. So, you know, it's it may be a hindrance to the student. Uh, who can't progress beyond that because the time isn't isn't uh, doesn't translate towards a private. But as an instructor, flight experience is flight experience is flight experience, and it's never that won't hold you back. Great point, Lennon. I think sometimes flying in the smaller planes takes a lot more stick and rudder skills. It absolutely does. <laughs> Well, gosh, we, we went an extra 10 minutes, and I, I really appreciate everybody uh, hanging around and listening to us today. Really do appreciate the comments, the questions, and all the suggestions for these episodes. And I'd love to hear from you folks. So if you want, just contact me on the website, aviationcareerspodcast.com, and click on the contact page. Or, you know what, even email me directly. And my email address is carl at aviationcareerspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash aviationcareerspodcast and on Twitter at Flying Careers. By liking us, you'll be able to keep up to date on episodes and other career news. And Len, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Sure, I'll make it easy. The uh, The two websites are, again, www.thepilotreport.com. On that website, you can find um, not only the videos and, and access that information, but also links to my Facebook account, Twitter account, YouTube videos. Uh, if you're interested in tuning into the aviation podcast about learning to fly, uh, living to fly, and loving to fly, that's at www.stuck.com 
Mike Avcast. That's M I C A V C A S T dot com. Again, you'll find all the information there. Listen to the episodes online. You can download it on iTunes. You can download our mobile phone applications. Check out Facebook and Twitter. All the information you need is right there on those two websites. Well, Len, again, thanks for joining us today and bringing all this great information to us. We Hopefully, we'll have you on again. And if you don't mind, if I have uh, questions from our listeners, can I forward those to you? Absolutely. You certainly can. It's been a, a real pleasure kind of revisiting the uh, the quote-unquote gauntlet that has been essentially the last six, uh, six or seven weeks of my life and being able to share that story with folks. And I hope this gives them a clearer perspective of expectations and, and goals. And, uh, Hey, I ultimately, I know I kind of made a funny joke at the beginning about the barbed wire fence, but I'm going to tell you the truth. If I can do it, you can do it. Just kind of listen to some of the things we talked about today and use those to your advantage. Use that knowledge from me and Carl having already gone through this process, the things that we did wrong, the things that we did right, take those as opportunities to learn from us and use those to your advantage if this if this is an opportunity that ever is presented to you. Well, then, thanks again for that advice. And, and folks, thanks for listening. And remember, keep focused on your aviation career goal. Safe flying, and we'll talk to you again next episode. You've been listening to Aviation Careers Podcast, an aviation podcast about living your dream and pursuing an exciting aviation career. This aviation podcast is produced by the Valeri Aviation Corporation. Although hosts or guests may receive compensation for products and services discussed in this podcast, compensation never influences our opinion. Before purchasing any product or service, you should always do your own research. Music by Billy Wheeler, All Rights Reserved.